Jesus paid it all. All of it. When he bore our sin, he bore all of our sin. All of our past sin, all of our present sin, all of our future sin, all of it. When he bore your wrath, it wasn't just a portion of it, it was all of it. We stand in him complete, not because of anything we bring to the table but because of everything that Jesus has done on our behalf. So, Father, we, we plead the cross this morning. We come under the cross this morning as we open your word, and we open your word to hear from you. So I pray that you would speak and that you would give us the grace that we need to listen and then to obey. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you now to turn with me to Luke's Gospel. chapter 9 this morning. We've been in a Lent series over the past few weeks. We, we've talked about various themes that we've, as we've considered different kingdom principles. Um, we, we considered first the, the, the kingdom principle of repentance. We, we then moved to humility. And then last week we addressed the kingdom principle of self-denial. And each week the goal was to focus on some aspect of either Jesus's teaching or Jesus's life to see how we should be then living our lives under the cross. And so this week we're moving to a different, maybe more surprising kingdom principle or reality. And that is the, the theme of suffering. Suffering. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. We were in Luke 9 last week. And we were looking at Jesus' teaching. And here, we're going to be looking at, again, an, an opportunity where Jesus does teach, but we're going to see Jesus' interaction as well. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 62. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this is God's word. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been told this. Maybe you haven't, but I'm sure you've heard uh, the phrase, you were born for this. You know, a lot of times whenever we, we show that we have a skill for something or an affinity for something and, and we do really well at it, you know, you may hear that phrase, you were, you were born to do this. You have found your calling in life. This is for you. I mean, I can imagine that like LeBron James, at least by the time, when, when LeBron James was in middle school, he was on TV, you know, he, he was that phenomenal of a basketball player. He was clearly born to do it. He, he did not grow up with, with any kind of privilege or advantages whatsoever, uh, single parent home, but he was just born to be the kind of basketball player that he was. So the same thing for musicians. You, whenever you're just, just incredibly talented or blessed by the Lord, you can tell you were born to do this. You were born for this. Um, Jesus, we could say, was born to suffer. 
He was born to suffer. I mean, when your nicknames are the man of sorrows or the suffering servant, and you read some of the messianic passages in Isaiah, and then you you see Jesus' life and how he lives, and then especially as he sets his face toward Jerusalem to go, this man was marked by suffering. He was born to suffer. And I think most Christians would, would agree with that. And, and we, would all, we would all look to Jesus and say, yes, absolutely, he was born to suffer because that's the whole purpose of the incarnation was, was for Jesus to come and live the life we could not live, the sinless life, and then to die in our place. So that, that includes suffering. So yes, he has to suffer in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I don't think any of you would have any objections to that or, or problems with it. But have you ever considered how normative suffering should be in the life of a Christian. We say it all the time. We want to look more like Jesus. But do we really? Do, do you really want to look like Jesus? Like not, not your own idea of Jesus, but when you open the Gospels and then you go to the New Testament letters and you see this exposition of who Jesus was, do you want to be like that? Because by all accounts, from a human standpoint, Jesus was a loser. He lost time and time again. Whenever he had opportunities to defend himself, he chose not to. He remained silent. And this man suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered for the good of others, for the sake of others. And we say we want to be like Jesus. Are you still wanting to are you still willing to be like Jesus if that means you have to suffer? What if, in order to be conformed to the image of Jesus, you knew you had to suffer? And that if you did not suffer, you would not be like Jesus? We, we could say that every single person who is born again is born again to suffer. You were born again for this, to suffer in the name of Jesus. So that's, that's really where we're going to go today with this passage. We're going to focus on Jesus' suffering, and then we're going to consider the role of suffering in our lives. And, and if you are suffering today, or if you have been, or you're not right now, but you know that you will be in the future, how can we as Christians face suffering? How does being a Christian, how does being a follower of Jesus transform the way that we suffer. And in order to do that, I want to give a few brief observations about suffering in general. We're not going to talk about everything, the relationship between the problem of evil and the sovereignty of God. We're not really going to get into all of that stuff. But I did want to make a few observations. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a really important book called The Problem of Pain. It's, it's excellent. But he does have this really important category that I'm going to outline for you, and then I'm going to kind of change the wording up a little bit. But he makes four distinctions with regard to suffering. Because Christians do fall into, you know, two really bad categories. Either we completely ignore suffering as having anything to do with God at all, and we're like, if anything bad happens to me, God just, he didn't do anything with it, he didn't know anything about it, and then we start saying things that are false about God. Um, we start to question his, his knowledge or, or his, his sovereignty because we don't want to, you know, put suffering in his court. You know, we don't, we don't want him to be associated with suffering. Or we take the opposite approach and we get hyper Calvinistic about it and we're like no God did this God did this evil and like he's so sovereign that not only is he kind of allowing suffering to happen to me but he is making me suffer and if we're honest with ourselves that's problematic too so let's just make four basic observations before we dig into um, the text today uh, C.S. Lewis breaks down these four distinctions related to suffering. He says, first, that there is a simple good that descends from God. There is a simple good that descends from God. So everything that descends from God is this simple good, and it's simple in, in terms of simple versus complex. It's not complex. It's just good, pure goodness, you know, descending from God. So, you know, when you think about the creation of the world, there was no evil, there was no sin, there was no suffering. Okay, and so there's the simple good descending from God. Secondly, there's the simple evil produced by rebellious creatures. 
So simple good from God, simple evil. So, you know, again, simple versus complex. It's not complex, it's just evil because it's rebellion against God. We see that again whenever um, Satan, he, he rebels against God and then we have Adam and Eve, they're rebelling against God and that's where you have the entrance of sin and evil into the world. It's not descending from God, it is coming from, produced by rebellious creatures. Okay, so then you've got only good coming from God. You have evil, sin, and all of its consequences, the suffering that comes from it, coming from the rebellious creatures. Third distinction. He says, then you have the exploitation of that evil by God. So God exploits the evil. The, exploita the exploitation of that evil by God for his redemptive purpose. So Lewis says, God exploits the evil that his rebellious creatures brought into his good created order, turns it on its head, and uses that very evil for his own redemptive purposes. And, and for Lewis, the primary example is the cross. It is both the greatest and worst day in the history of the world. It is both the greatest and worst act in the history of the world. It is both good and evil. The trial was, you know, a total miscarriage of justice. Jesus should not have been executed, but he was. He was, first of all, completely sinless, and yet he was executed. It was horrendous what happened to Jesus. It was wrong. It was evil. And yet God used that evil to save sinners. He exploits evil and suffering for his redemptive purposes. And then finally he says, for, the last distinction, for the complex good to which accepted suffering and repented sin contribute. So this is Lewis's way of saying that God uses even your deepest pain and grief and sorrow and suffering for your ultimate good. It's a complex good. It's not a simple good. It's a complex good because it involves the evil. It involves the suffering. It involves all of the bad that's, that's in the world and in your life that's coming upon you. I find that making these observations kind of helps us strike a balance between what is God's role in my suffering? The suffering is not coming directly from God. Only simple good comes from God. And yet, when evil enters the world, God then turns the evil, turns all of the bad on its head, he hijacks it, and he uses it for his own redemptive purposes for those he loves. So there, at the very beginning, what we want to say is there is no amount of evil and suffering in the world that can stop God from accomplishing his purposes in your life. It is not as if there is some horrid evil that can come upon you that will outweigh or overcome what God is trying to do through you. In fact, he will meet the suffering that you endure and use it to take you to where he wants you to go. So those, those are the four observations there. And what we, what we can also say here is that God is not the root cause of suffering. God is sovereign in and over suffering. And, and then what's most remarkable, God willingly participates in our suffering, okay? So when you go to God in prayer because you're suffering and you need comfort for, from him, he's not looking at you and saying, man, that must be awful. I can't imagine no, God himself knows what it's like to suffer. He knows because he entered our suffering. He was in the pain, in the evil with us. And then finally, one more thing we want to say right at the very beginning is that God will put an end to all suffering. He will put an end to all suffering. So he's not the root cause. He's sovereign over it. He willingly participates in it and he will put an end to all suffering. So those, those just initial observations before we get into the text. I know whenever you talk about suffering, it's really odd. For some of you, it, it is really hitting home right now because you're in a lot of pain. And, and you, you are truly and deeply suffering right now. And others, you're like, well, you know, I got some stuff going on. I mean, that, you know, is a little annoying or I don't know if I consider it suffering or not. Um... If it's not a simple good, you know, 
if there's any complexity to it at all, then you're probably experiencing a consequence of the fall, which is a consequence of sin, whether it's your sin or someone else's sin. And so we can, whether it may be, you know, to a much lesser degree, but we can say that all of us endure suffering. We all suffer. We all suffer. What I'm arguing today is that suffering was not only a normative and necessary part of Jesus's mission, but suffering is also a normative and necessary part of our own discipleship. We're going we're gonna to try to see that by looking at three different interactions in Luke 9, 51 through 62. We're going to begin with our, my first point. Again, you have two, two pages in your liturgy guide for notes. There's a guided notes section. There's a blank page there. Um, willing to send my notes to you later in the week. Um, but the first point for those of you who are note takers is Jesus' mission as the Messiah requires suffering. Jesus' mission as the Messiah requires suffering. And, you know, this has been a common theme the last few weeks. And I think it's been really healthy for us to see, you know, we always talk about the humility of Jesus, but it's good sometimes to meditate on the necessity of that humility. You know, it's, it's good for us to say, we, you know, we, yeah, we should repent. It's another thing to meditate on the fact that if you don't repent, you can't have Jesus. The necessity, you know, self-denial, we saw last week. It's, you got to do it. If you, if you don't deny yourself, you won't follow Jesus. And so, again, this week, we look at suffering, and you're like, if we're going to be arguing that suffering is required of us, some of you are like, oh, I got that nailed, you know? I'm suffering real good right now. Um, I, I do want us to see how necessary it was. So let's look first just, just at one verse in Luke 9, 51. Um, it's, this verse always surprises me. It, all, it almost like makes me emotional when I, when I read it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's so simple. You know, you could just overlook it and be like, oh, well, he's just, you know, deciding to go, go that way. It's about time. But notice Luke's language. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, so he knew, like his, his you know, his hour had almost come for him to be taken up taken up how taken up on the cross taken up back into heaven probably both but he knew that the culmination of his mission on earth his state of humiliation was about to happen you know that dread you have whether it's the dread of you know having a surgery or you know whatever you're dreading a phone call and then it's like you you notice you know, the tension that kind of builds whenever you see the clock and the hand just keeps going and gets really close. Or maybe, you know, the doctor comes out, we're almost ready. And how that tension build, builds. The tension is building for Jesus. And his response challenges me every single time I read it. He says, or it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The time has come for Jesus to suffer. Suffering that he should not have to endure. Right? He's God. He's the one that the simple good descends from. And yet, he's about to suffer, and he sets his face. He looks his suffering square in the face, and he goes. Sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem meant certain suffering and death for Jesus, and nothing more. Jerusalem meant betrayal by his closest Friends. Everyone betrayed Jesus except for the women. Everyone. You know, his disciples didn't betray him in the way that Judas did, but they all left. They were done. Jesus knows that's coming. And yet he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. When he set his face to go to Jerusalem, Jesus resolved to suffer for you. He resolved to suffer for sinners. And why, why did he do this? Because suffering for Jesus was necessary. In order for Jesus to accomplish his mission, the very purpose of his incarnation, the, the whole point of him being here at this moment is for him to suffer in the place of sinners. He had to do it. Now, why did he have to do it? He had to do it at least, for at least two reasons. We're not going to get into all of them. At least two reasons I want you to think about today. He had to do it for the appeasement of God's wrath. 
Our sin elicits God's wrath. Our sin is deserving of God's wrath. Because God is holy, and he's a good judge. And because God is holy and we are sinful, we are deserving of his wrath. And since we cannot change our disposition toward God, we remain sinners before God, then that interaction between God and us will not change. We will be separated, but not only will we be separated, but the wrath of God will, as Jesus says, remain on us. It will remain on us. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 3 that Jesus became a propitiation for our sins. That by dying on the cross, in our place, God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath was fully and finally satisfied so that you, by faith in Jesus, never have to face it again. If Jesus did not go and suffer and die, we would all still be under God's wrath. It's the only way for it to happen. Jesus had to step in and take our place or else we would face God's wrath. Either Jesus faces God's wrath for us or we face God's wrath. So Jesus had to suffer for the appeasement of God's wrath when Jesus is suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked that the cup be taken from him, the cup of God's wrath, because he knows what that means. And yet, for our sake, he says, not my will, but your will be done. So for the appeasement of God's wrath, Jesus' suffering was necessary, but also for the forgiveness of man's sin. For the forgiveness of man's sin. Jesus had to suffer. If Jesus did not suffer in our place, we would have no hope of reconciliation with God. There is a chasm that exists between God and sinful humanity, and Jesus stands in the gap. And he mediates. He becomes our only mediator when he goes to the cross and he suffers in our place. When he dies in our place, we are now reconciled to God. So the only way for us to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God is for Jesus to suffer. It wasn't an option for him. He had to go and suffer and die or else we would not be with God. It's not an option for Jesus. It had to happen that way. And praise God it did. So let's make, let's make just a few more observations about Jesus' resolve to go to Jerusalem. If it was absolutely necessary, if it's absolutely necessary, I think what we can do now is look at how Jesus faced his suffering. And we might be able to draw something out of it. How did Jesus face the suffering that was about to come? How is Jesus able to set his face knowing that suffering's coming and go anyway? Well, let's at least make some observations about it. Since Jesus recognized that suffering was a necessary component to his mission, we see four things from Jesus at least. First, Jesus was not surprised by his mission. You notice that? He's not caught off guard by it. He's not surprised. He knows that suffering is a necessary part. It's not like he's here on earth and he's doing all of this work and then he learns, oh wait, I'm going to suffer and die? What gives? No, he knew. He wasn't surprised. And since he's not surprised by the suffering that's coming, he's able to set his face toward the suffering and go and willingly, willingly face it for the sake of others. Second observation we can make, Jesus was not disillusioned by his mission. He didn't have any unrealistic or romanticized expectations unlike the disciples. The disciples had all of these unrealistic expectations of what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. It was, it was almost romanticized in their mind of, you know, Jesus as the Messiah coming in and there being this, this massive uh, overhaul of the Roman authorities and Jesus set up back on David's throne and this fervor, this nationalistic fervor that would have come with it. And yet Jesus had no disillusionment about who he was and what he was supposed to do. It was very simple for him. I have come to suffer and die for the sake of others. The third observation we can make is that Jesus did not compromise his mission. So since he knew that suffering was a normative and necessary part of his mission, Jesus 
wasn't passive. Okay? He wasn't coerced into doing it. You know, it's like one of those things where you kind of try to trick your kids into, into going to the dentist or wherever you're taking them. You have to, you know, just maybe you don't tell them where you're going or, you know, you, uh, because otherwise, or, or no, what happens is, yeah, you don't tell them where you're going and then you finally get there and that moment kicks in for them. They realize where they actually are and then they're like are crawling back in the car and so you're like pulling them and dragging them by their legs to get them in. That's not what's happening to Jesus here. Okay, he, he doesn't, you know, come to this point in his life and say, all right, Father, what's next? What we got? And then he, he learns, well, you're going to go to Jerusalem because you have to suffer and die for these people. Whoa, no, I did not sign up for that. You know, and then, then the Father has to drag Jesus kicking and screaming into Jerusalem. No, what we see here in, John, in Luke 9, 51 is when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem there's there's nothing passive about this sentence Jesus is actively and willingly going to a place that will only bring him pain that will only bring him suffering and that will end in death for him so with those four observations what can we conclude about Jesus' approach to suffering. At least three things. First, Jesus approached his suffering with resolve to submit to God's good will. With resolve to submit to God's good will. We see that especially, as I said earlier, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying and he asks for the cup to be removed. If there is another way remove this cup and then he prays and concludes his prayer I'm so thankful that he did not my will but yours so in his state of humiliation God the son submits to God the father and his will for his life he approached his suffering it's not as if Jesus was a masochist and wanted to be in pain as if he got something out of it oh I just love it I love to suffer and he wanted to go no, he did not want to go in that sense, in that, in that part of his state of humiliation. Not because he just relished being in pain. Even though he knew pain was coming, Jesus would rather submit to God's good will and be in pain than disobey God's will and be comforted. Okay, another thing we can, we can kind of conclude about Jesus' approach to suffering he approached his suffering with recognition of God's good plan. Okay, this has been the plan. The plan for Jesus to accomplish his mission is for Jesus to suffer and die. Jesus recognized that. He wasn't caught off guard by it. It didn't surprise him. He knew the only way for him to do the Father's will to accomplish his plan of salvation is to go to a cross and die and suffer for sinners for those who had rebelled against him. He knows and recognizes that that is a good plan from a good God. And so he submits to his Father's will and he goes. And then finally what we see, Jesus approached his suffering with confidence in his future glory. We read this passage either last week or the week before, I can't remember, but it was Hebrews 12 too, you know, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus goes to the cross knowing he's going to suffer because what he knows is that glory is coming. Future, eternal glory is coming. And so that enables Jesus to endure the suffering that is right now. The suffering that Jesus endured was temporary and the glory that Jesus will and is enjoying is eternal. So, we can make so many observations. This is what I love about Bible meditation. You can make so many observations about one little verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Suffering was necessary for Jesus. He had to suffer. And when Jesus suffered, because he had the right view and understanding of his mission and what God was requiring of him, he was able to face even the deepest pain 
in a healthy way. So, you know, that's, that's Jesus' mission as the Messiah. It requires suffering. Uh, second thing I want to look at is found in verses 52 through 56. So if you're taking notes, um, transition to our second point here, our misconceptions about the Messiah. So our misconceptions about the Messiah cause misunderstandings about our suffering. Our misconceptions about the Messiah cause misunderstandings about our suffering. So if you don't find yourself in Jesus's camp here where you, you know that suffering's coming and you take it on like this, if your experience in dealing with your pain and suffering is a little bit different than that, where you're not just all in with it, or you're not all good with it, let's, let's, see, let's see what the disciples said, because it could be that you're misunderstanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. So verse 52, I'll, I'll read to verse 56. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, it was probably a cultural, religious, you know, thing there, but it is interesting, and we can make just a brief point here. Um, even though we're about to talk about how when you don't understand what Jesus came to do, you're not going to be able to understand your suffering, sometimes you do fully understand what Jesus is calling you to, and that's the reason that you choose not to follow him. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So for some of you, you may come to the realization, Jesus is going to require me to suffer. I don't want any part of that. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Oh, that's always so interesting to me that they felt like they had that ability. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we're going to look back at something that they said a little bit earlier, you know, and they, they think they're so awesome. But man, like, if I, I guess if I actually did think that I had the ability to call down fire from heaven, I'd be asking, hey, who's the greatest in heaven? You know? Me or, me or him, because, you know, we obviously have the ability to call down fire from heaven. Um, I just, I don't know, man, that's, that's always weirded me out that they thought they could do that. Um, and then verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So here's what's happening. They go into the Samaritan village and to make preparations, and the village, the people in the village, they don't receive Jesus. And so they reject Jesus. They don't want any part of what he's doing, what's, what's happening, because he's going to Jerusalem. Um, just a lot of, you know, historical conflict there. And they don't want any part of it, and so they're leaving. So the disciples are so mad about this. How can you reject the Messiah? What is wrong with you, okay? They need to be judged right now. You reject Jesus, you deserve judgment. Let's call judgment down right now. They did not understand what Jesus was doing. They did not understand that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. They did not understand that judgment in that capacity is not happening right now. When you look back um, in Luke 9, verse 46, we, we read about this argument. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So you have the disciples who are expecting and craving and wanting immediate glory because they're connected to the Messiah. And you have the disciples, and they are craving and wanting and desiring immediate judgment for all of Jesus' enemies. So they want this immediate glory for themselves. And it's, it's good. Glory is coming for Jesus' people. It's the right words, but it's the wrong time. So glory is coming to those who receive Jesus, but glory comes later. If you forget that, if you forget that glory comes later, you're going to always be surprised and upset and by your suffering, and you're always going to grumble. You'll be like the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, longing for their days back in slavery in Egypt because their expectations were off. If you expect God to give you something now that he has reserved for you later, you will constantly be frustrated and you will not suffer well. The disciples also wanted immediate judgment for, for others, right? Let's call down the fire now. Right words, right? If you, if you reject Jesus, ultimately, that will end in judgment. 
That's why Jesus came to suffer. He had to suffer for your sins. If you don't trust in Jesus, then your sins are not covered by Jesus. You will have to answer for your sins, and you will answer with judgment. The Lord will judge you for it. But that comes later, when Jesus returns. So if we misunderstand Jesus' mission like the disciples, if we forget that suffering is a normal part of Jesus' mission, we will misinterpret and waste our suffering. We won't understand. Suffering will surprise us at every single point. What gives, God? I'm your child. I'm your child. If you, if you forget that suffering is normal, even for God's children, you will be shocked by it every single time. It will turn you against God and it will turn you against others. If you don't have that healthy balance of seeing suffering as evil and wrong that will one day be eradicated, but at the same time something that God uses in your life to help conform you to the image of his son, you will be miserable. You, you will be miserable at every single point. Your suffering will consume you. It will consume you, and it will win over you. If we misunderstand Jesus' mission, we will also misunderstand our mission. So if you misunderstand Jesus, and you just see suffering as, you know, something that happened to him, but not necessary, Part and parcel of Jesus being the Messiah is to suffer. And then he calls us to be like him. So part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus is to suffer. If you forget that, or if you misunderstand that, then you're not going to understand that our mission includes suffering for the good of others. Okay, if we forget that suffering is at the heart of Jesus' mission, we will turn away from anything that could bring us into suffering. If you think suffering should not be normal for your life, you'll never sacrifice for someone else. You know? You'll never take any risk for the sake of the gospel. You won't have difficult conversations. You won't try to get close to someone. Every time I get close to someone, I get burned. You ever had that thought? Every time I get close to someone in a church, I get burned. So I'm just going to go to church, do my own thing. You know, if I go to life group, I'm just not going to get too, be too open, get too close. If I get close to people, they're going to hurt me and it's going to be painful. And God doesn't want me to be in pain. And so you don't get close to anybody. And then one day you wake up and you feel really alone, even though you're in a room with a lot of people, you feel really alone. And the whole time, you're turning your anger and your frustrations and your grumbling against God and against other people. It's their fault. When really, you just have a misconception about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm telling you right now, if you are suffering, especially as a result of obeying something Jesus has called us to do, you are in good company. Because that's what Jesus did. It is normal. It is normal for you to suffer as a result of following Jesus. You will never accomplish or even seek to accomplish what God has called you to do in this church and in this city if you do whatever it takes to not be in pain. Do whatever it takes to be comfortable. If you prioritize comfort you will compromise obedience to Jesus at some point. At some point you will, because at some point he will call you to do something that will cause you pain. Because God's ultimate goal for you is not for you to be comfortable now. God's ultimate goal for you is to be conformed to the image of his son. And we're going to see right now that he uses pain and suffering to do that. So, if you have a misconception about who Jesus is and what he came to do, you will mis misunderstand, you will misinterpret your own suffering. But third and finally, we see that our mandate from the Messiah clarifies the purpose of suffering in our lives. So we're going to look at Luke 9, verses 57 through 62, these interactions that Jesus has in these would-be disciples. 
So our mandate from the Messiah, what Jesus calls us to do, it clarifies the purpose of suffering in our lives. So our mandate for discipleship follows the pattern of Jesus's mission. Let's look at this interaction starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus is like, okay, really? Well, check this out. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So I'm homeless. You still, you still good? You still in? To another, he said, so Jesus says to this guy, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. You know, I want to follow you, but I have some other you know, obligations, responsibilities I need to take care of first, and then I'll, I'll be right on it. You just wait right here. You wait right here. And Jesus replied, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, you all these people want to follow Jesus, you know. I will follow you, Lord. So I don't know if they were real close together and he kind of saw the pattern. So he just tries to get out in front of it. He's like, I will follow you, Lord. But, but, you know, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Well, that's reasonable. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that's his point. That's his point. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here's the connection to our focus on suffering this morning. When we meet suffering on the path of discipleship, we will be faced with a decision. And I'm here to just, if you didn't know, on the path of discipleship, you'll face suffering. You're going to face it. When you meet it, as you're following Jesus, when you meet suffering, you are faced with a decision. Am I going to turn back? Or am I going to press on? Do you turn back? Or do you press on? Do you see suffering coming and then try to find another way? Nah, that looks like it's going to be painful or it just happens to you and you find yourself on the path of following Jesus and you find it to be painful and uncomfortable and you're like, nah, I'm going to try something else. It may be subtle, but when you compromise obedience to Jesus for the sake of comfort, you're doing what Jesus says you can't do. You're turning back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't put your hand to the plow and follow Jesus when everything is good. And then when something goes wrong, look back. That's what the people of Israel did. They looked back. This isn't what I thought it would be. And maybe you're in a season in your life and following Jesus isn't what you thought it would be. Or... You know, maybe more practically, you came to Trace Crossing and it isn't what you thought it would be. You had certain expectations, you had certain dreams and goals and you wanted it to be something and it's not that. It was, it's, it's far harder than you thought it would be or it's more difficult than you thought it would be. You have a choice. Are you going to press on and endure suffering or are, or are you going to look back? So the question for us is, how can we press on in our pursuit of Jesus when we meet suffering along the way? Two words. First, expect to suffer. When you expect to suffer, it completely changes when suffering comes. If suffering is a surprise to you, you will immediately grumble. If suffering is an expectation for you, you will be in a place to embrace suffering, which is what we're going to say next. But first, expect to suffer for three reasons. First, we still live in a fallen world. You're going to suffer. Okay? We, we can't predict. Like, you, you can be the healthiest person in the world and get cancer. Like, we live in a fallen world. You're, you're going to suffer. Second, we still sin. Okay? Like, you get baptized, you come out, they, I don't know, feel that they, they probably sinned on the way out, right? Well, they tried to splash, like, half the audience. So, I mean, I don't know what the heart motive was there, but... Uh, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but we still sin. We still sin. So when we sin, there are consequences for that, and we suffer for it. And then finally, because we follow Jesus, you're on the path of discipleship, and I'm telling you, I promise you, there is suffering on that path. 
It's all over the New Testament. We, we went through 1 Peter, and it, it's basically a word to, to suffering Christians. This is how you suffer well. And one of the things that Peter says is, don't be surprised. This is something God will use for your good. So expect to suffer, but you know, then also embrace suffering. Suffering is a paradox. It's a paradox because no one wants to suffer. No one wants to suffer. And God does not, is not the author of evil which causes suffering. Okay, he's not the author of sin. Yet, suffering in the life of a Christian is hijacked by God and used for our good. So in some crazy, mysterious way, something that is so wrong and so awful and has no future because God's going to eradicate it one day fully and finally after Jesus returns is somehow a gift. Somehow our pain and our suffering when it comes to us can be received as a gift from God. It's a paradox. God hijacks the purpose of suffering and he uses it for our good. All actions intended by others for evil. We see this in Genesis 50 with Joseph and his brothers. All actions intended by others for evil must sift through the hand of God who is always working for our good. I don't know about you. It may not be comforting for you, but it is, it is comforting for me to know that there isn't one act of evil, one ounce of suffering that doesn't sift through the hand of God before it comes to me. And so it comes to me after sifting through the hand of God, which means that God allows me to suffer. He allows you to suffer. He lets it happen. His purpose in it, even though others may intend evil and suffering for bad and for your detriment, God turns all of that and he uses all of that for your good. So since it's God who allows us to suffer, when we suffer, we're given a choice, which is really similar to what Jesus is saying to these people. No, it's going to be painful. You're going to have to have awkward conversations with your family members when you choose to follow me. No, you can't go bury your dad. You've got to follow me. You don't think that's painful for this person? But he's saying you have a choice when you suffer. You can surrender to your pain and be a grumbling mess. Or you can surrender to Jesus and be mindful and grateful of the work that he's doing in you. And so the gospel itself reorients our outlook on suffering, pain, and grief. Suffering is a means of demonstrating the gospel. It's a means of demonstrating the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1 that when he suffers, that he's filling up where the afflictions of Christ were lacking. Okay, And he's not saying that the the suffering of Jesus was not sufficient for us or something more had to be added to it. But what he's saying is that unlike the disciples and apostles, there are so many people who didn't actually see Jesus suffer. But when they see us suffer for his sake, we are painting a picture of Jesus to them. So every single time you suffer in your life, especially when it's for the sake of following Jesus, you are resembling Jesus to a lost and dying world. Suffering is a means of demonstrating the gospel to others. And then second, suffering is a means of growing in the gospel. Turn to Romans 5 really fast. This is my favorite passage on suffering. So since the gospel reorients our outlook on suffering, pain, and grief... It means that suffering is a means of demonstrating the gospel and that suffering is a means of growing in the gospel. So when we meet suffering on the path of discipleship, we can meet it as a strange friend that actually helps us showcase the gospel through our suffering. And then right here, Romans 5, actually helps us grow in the gospel. Suffering is this paradoxical gift. Let's just start in verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice 
in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, okay? So not only do we rejoice in our hope of future glory, but Paul says, and and it's just, I don't know anyone other than Christians that can actually say this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How can he say that? That when you meet suffering on the path of discipleship, you can rejoice. You can rejoice in your suffering. He says, you can rejoice because you are confident that God is about to turn all of this pain for my good. He's about to turn all of it for my good. We know we can rejoice because we know that suffering will produce endurance. And it's only those who endure till the end who will be saved. Those who put their hand to the plow but look back are not fit for the kingdom of God. If you're cool following Jesus until it gets painful and then you turn around, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. It's only those who endure to the end who will be saved. And part of building that endurance is the pain and suffering that this world brings. And that's why I say there is no amount of pain, no amount of suffering that can keep God from having his way in your life. He uses it. So suffering is a means of growing in the gospel. And then finally, since you're in Romans, just turn to chapter 8. Suffering is a means of attaining the glory of the gospel. Okay, so suffering is a means of demonstrating the gospel. We demonstrate the sufferings of Jesus in our suffering. Suffering is a means of growing in the gospel. It actually builds us up to endure and it builds character in us so that we actually become more Christ-like because we suffered. But finally, suffering is actually a means of attaining the glory of the gospel. So look at, look at Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That changes the way we look at suffering, does it not? Notice Paul's language. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What's the next word? Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. If you don't suffer with Christ now, or if you balk on your walk with Christ because of suffering, you will not enjoy glory with him later. The end of suffering is glory. But refusing to follow Jesus because of suffering now will result in future suffering later. So everyone in this room has a choice this morning. You have a choice. If you know that suffering is on the path of discipleship, are you going to walk that path? Are you going to follow Jesus? Or... Are you going to value your own personal temporary comfort now and not follow Jesus? Because if you do, not only are you not fit for the kingdom, but the wrath of God will still be on you. You will not be forgiven of your sins and you will eternally suffer. Suffering is a normative and necessary part of Jesus' mission, and it's a normative and necessary part of our mission in the city. Are we willing to suffer to see people in Tupelo come to saving faith in Jesus? Are we willing to suffer? Suffer, okay? Like real suffering, real risk-taking. So that people who do not know Jesus in here, in this city, will come to know him. If we're not willing to suffer, we will not follow Jesus' mission. We will not follow the pattern of discipleship. So two conclusions. I'll leave you with two conclusions. First, we, we must follow Jesus with full resolve. Discipleship is a discipline of setting your face to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. Set your face this week. Set your face the rest of this year to follow Jesus on a path that includes suffering and death. 
And when we set our face to follow Jesus, we resolve to follow him no matter what it requires of us. Resolve this week to follow Jesus no matter what he requires of you. No matter what. Even if what he requires of you brings you into a place of pain and suffering and confusion, you're willing to do it because you're following Jesus. And then the last, last conclusion, let's, let's follow Jesus with no reserve. That means we cut out anything from our lives that, keeps, that would keep us from following Jesus. Anything that would keep you from following Jesus, we cut it out. And then we ignore any counsel that would have you choose comfort over Christ. We ignore any counsel that would say, no, 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 if you do that, it's going to be really hard. Well, I think, I think God wants me to do it. Yeah, but it's going to be real. I'm telling you, it's going to be hard. And it, it's going to be painful, and you're going to suffer. Don't do that. Reject that counsel. Be like, well, I'm not surprised that it's going to be hard. Following Jesus does not preclude the possibility of suffering. It's normal. I expect it. I welcome it. I set my face to follow the will of God, no matter what Jesus requires of me. So I would encourage you, Face all trials and pain and suffering and evil with humble confidence in the, pro- in the providence of God and also endure with a persevering faith that looks to Jesus, our suffering servant, and longs for the day when suffering will be a distant memory. If you've put your hand to the plow, don't turn back just because suffering is ahead. Press on. Let's, let's pray together. Father, Um, some of us are, are deeply suffering in this room. There is a lot of pain, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, maybe. I pray that as we see it as normal, because we live in a fallen world and because we have sin in our hearts and because we're following Jesus, I pray that we would not wrongly think that we shouldn't wrestle with you. It is good for us to wrestle with you because it means we're going to you in our pain and suffering. So I pray that we would. I pray that we would run to you when we meet suffering on the path of discipleship. That we would look to Jesus and how he suffered in our place and know that he can fully identify with us. I pray that that gospel truth would empower us to embrace suffering. And that we would be confident that you will use it for our good, even if we can't see it now and even if we never see it in our lives. Father, help us to trust you. And then give us the courage and the resolve to follow you no matter what you require of us. We are confident that you will never lead us astray. So give us the courage to follow you even if we know that it will mean suffering for us. May we fear abandoning Christ more than abandoning comfort. And so, Father, I pray that you would draw us close to you, but that you would also draw us close to one another. That we would sharpen one another. That when we suffer, we would be quick not just to go to you, but to go to one another because we know that we will be loved and we will be pushed and we will be challenged. So as we take this journey together, we know that we're going to face suffering. We know that days ahead may include pain. I pray that we would expect it and I pray that we would embrace it just like Jesus did, all for your glory. So now... We sing with hope. We sing with the hope of the future glory of the gospel. That one day when Jesus returns and we are in that perfect, beautiful place called the new heavens and the new earth, that there will be no more tears, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering because there will be no more sin. Jesus, you have reigned victorious over sin and Satan. You have crushed the head of the serpent. You declared on the cross as you suffered, it is finished. 
suffering is finished. Sin is finished and death itself is finished. Oh, because you were extinguished on the cross. You bore the wrath of God that we deserve to face. So we long for that day of final redemption and restoration of all things. And I pray that you would give us the grace to endure as we wait and long. We ask all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Um, I want to invite you to stand now. We're going to respond with song. Um, if, if I don't get a chance to say it at the end, if you want to speak with me uh, at the end about what it means to follow Jesus or what it means to become a member of Trace Crossing, I'll be available. I'll be down here at the front. But let's, let's stand now and let's respond through song. Mm-hmm.